Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with promo code GABFEST. And by Tracker, a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Make losing things a thing of the past. Get 30% off your first Tracker device by going to thetracker.com and using the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 5th, 2016, the Suspending My Campaign edition of the Gap Fest. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C., back in our studio, back from Atlanta, sadly. Enjoyed that trip a lot. Uh, with me in Washington, also back from Atlanta, is John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hello, David. And even though John sounded like he was calling across a chasm, he is just across the table. He was not actually across the chasm. And then actually across the chasm, the chasm of most of the Northeast, <laughs> is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times, who is in New Haven. Indeed. Hello. I feel like we're all a little punchy today. I feel a little punchy. Can we I, ta- can we talk for sleep. one second about the amazing thing mm-hmm. that uh, was reported uh, by maybe it was five thirty eight or the Upshot or somebody saying they were looking at what is the typical America typical American place oh, and it's yes. New Haven. It is Let's New Haven, Connecticut, it. is yes. the most typical place. Why? Most, what what makes it typical demographically? We have income. Yes, the most normal demographics. Normal you were being about defined normal. How? Well, when people talk about like real America, they identify it as like some place in the Midwest or yeah. some place that's you right. know that's a small town. Yeah. But actually, it is a mid-sized city with, New Haven, with a, this level of diver- the of kind diversity. of diversity that New Haven has. I thought New Haven. Had, well, I would have guessed that New Haven had a slightly higher minority population than the average American city. Or maybe that's not the quality. Well, in order for us to achieve our status of most normal America, our metropolitan area had to be extended Big. slightly into the suburbs. Right. But not very far, only to the fair <laughs> Only to Ohio. Only, I think. <laughs> only, I think, about maybe 20 minutes from my house. So, yes, we are typical. And I feel very proud of that idea, perhaps even a bit smug. I'm... But I want to know the. I'm poem. sure you feel smug, no the, doubt about that. The next question I want to know is what? Did, <laughs> what is number like two, three, four, five, and six? Um, it was in- so it was a lot of of East Coast and a couple California cities, right? San Jose is in the top ten. Sacramento, David. What were some of the? I'm others? trying to remember, but they were what? They were more coastal. What is the term for? Right. Not believing new facts you're presented with, other than the modern <laughs> the modern condition. I can see John just saying Des Moines. What about Des Moines? 
no, I've been no. to Des Moines Des a lot. You're attached no, to your is, fantasy. No, no, no. Nobody would say white nobody, fantasy. No, 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 nobody would say Des Moines is normal. No, 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 no. I'm not. Totally. I mean, not. I mean, not. You know, representative of the entire country. I'm just uh, like nothing in the Midwest. Nothing like I would think. Like there'd be some cities in Illinois. Anyway, it's fascinating. John's like saying Knoxville to himself in his delicate accent. <laughs> Knoxville. On this week's GabFest, Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for president. Let us let that sink in a bit. Oof. Ugh. Okay. Now that it's sunk in, the Supreme Court gets ready to legalize bribery as long as it's not exactly bribery. We'll talk about the Bob McDonald case. Then Yale's perverse decision to name a new college after Ben Franklin and not rename a college that honors legendary, notorious Senator John C. Calhoun. And we'll have cocktail chatter. Then in Slate Plus, we will run a segment from our live show in Atlanta where we did something that has never before been attempted and will not, in fact, be attempted this year in America, which is that we staged a contested convention at our live show. And we will give that to you, Slate Plus listeners, for your delectation. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And do not forget, if you're going to be in Washington on July 13th, at 7 p.m., we have a show at the Warner Theater. It's going to be right before the Republican convention. Please join us at that show at the Warner Theater on July 13th. You can get information at slate.com slash live. Let it roll across your tongue, President Trump. I challenge you to say that, Emily. Can you say that? President Trump. I'm going to choose not to. President I could, Trump. Just say it. I'm going to say it. Choose to, I'm going to choose to live in the American America that I want to live in, in which that is not a reality. So, no, I'm not saying it. You say it. <laughs> he has several times. My favorite Donald Trump moment of this week was when he said he'd given up a lot to run for president. I gave up two more seasons of Celebrity <laughs> Apprentice. That was my favorite. It was the best. Quote. The best thing about that line is the specificity of it. Not just one season, two. Ted Cruz and John Kasich dropped out of the Republican presidential campaign this week, ensuring that which was already inevitable after Donald Trump's huge Tuesday night victory in Indiana. Trump will be the Republican nominee for president, barring some unforeseeable change. A man abhorred by me, at least, as a racist demagogue, an ignorant hate monger, a bully with incoherent and dangerous positions about immigration, trade, religion, and everything else is going to represent the Republican Party in the presidential election in November. How is it that it went from being sort of maybe, then it went to contesting convention, and then it suddenly became like, oh, inevitable. What what turned in the last few weeks? <laughs> I mean, Trump won. He, <laughs> he broke his ceiling. He started winning majorities in the states. I've been trying to, this. what I want to ask you guys is, okay, so go back to the beginning-ish of all of this. We didn't take him seriously. Most of the media didn't take him seriously. He kind of went along as this kind of entertainment sidecar next to the real campaign. Then people sort of wised up a little bit. Oh, hey, look, this guy is actually really seems to have some purchase. Jeb Bush starts going after him in response to tra to Trump, obviously, you know, mocking the hell out of Bush. It's Bush mounted a, a pretty good attack, but it didn't work. And by then, it seems like Trump was kind of Teflon. And no matter what outrageous thing he said, the people who he's appealing to stuck with him, not necessarily because they agreed with everything, but because they believe that underneath he is going to fight this rig system that is hurting them and that he's gonna that he's speaking the truth in a way other politicians don't, which at moments like I understand that appeal of his too. 
And then what? And then like Marco Rubio kind of flames out and we have this effort by Ted Cruz, like a pretty strong effort to mount a real challenge. It seems like Cruz is going to turn it around maybe at some point at least to challenge him at the convention. And then Cruz had such a limited appeal, right? He could never really get beyond his conservative base. And Trump just kind of steamrolled by everyone. It's like there are all these moments along the way where you could have imagined it happening differently, but they all lined up for him. Was that a question? Didn't that start as a question? I can't remember. Well, no, it was one of those really terrible kind of senatorial questions where I used pretending to ask you a question as an excuse to go on a long rant. But what do you think? Was this inevitable? What were the key moments along the way at which it could have gone differently? And why didn't it? Well, uh, John will John will give the, the definitive answer in a minute. I'll give a few of the reasons I think it happened. One, there were too many candidates to begin with. So there, Trump was the most interesting and dominant like dominant sort of uh, sort of public figure in that field to begin with uh, and so he he led from the polls from the beginning that's what we forget is that even though he was a joke he was always ahead in the polls in that large field that large field no one had the incentive to really go after him for a very long time because it was it was a suicide mission and why would you take yourself out you would assume that Trump would would wash out on his own he didn't have to spend money the others did have to spend money because he was getting free coverage and he was able to pay for things that he wanted to pay for. And he, he also didn't have to spend time worrying about that. The comp- there was a season was sort of compressed compared to tr- primary seasons in the past, like the period which really mattered where certain candidates had to win and start to develop was actually a relatively short period in February and March. And so Marco Rubio, who had, the I think, the potential to sort of catch fire and maybe break out and become that that number one challenger just didn't do it in that period and then he was then he was gone so i think those are some reasons john what are the other reasons yeah the, all of those are uh, quite right i think the surprise in his candidacy was that people who had been so angry at the betrayals and position switching of their Washington politicians, we knew they were angry. That's what the whole Tea Party movement was about. But that they would pick somebody who had so many more changes of positions and who sometimes in the same conversation, that they would choose somebody who exemplified in so many different ways. The key thing that people were so upset about was what is a little confusing, but what is understandable and what is most important in the conversations that I've had with voters and in focus groups and all of that is that this sense of betrayal with Washington politicians who came into power, Republicans in particular, who came into power and did nothing, who always seemed to have a careful, meaningless answer to why they're not doing anything about immigration, to why they're not doing anything about the economic conditions. He provided clear, simple answers. He didn't give a damn. And the entire Ben Carson candidacy was launched roughly based on a talk he gave at the National Prayer Breakfast in which he talked about the corrosion of political corruptness. And you saw in that the kind of starvation for politicians who would say something meaningful, the irritation with kind of careful PC culture. The fact that Carson was able to get as far as he was just on that alone gave you a sense of the appetite that was out there for somebody who would push back against what people felt was this kind of careful language about things they cared about. But then culturally, this kind of um, inability to kind of call a truth a truth. And so that when Trump came in with that times 10, it was incredibly appealing. The other piece of this, John, which you I think you're hitting on tangentially, and maybe you don't mean this, is 
this is in some sense a consequence of a Republican Party which has run against government, which has abused and discredited and attacked the idea of government and politics as worthy. And therefore, it, the Republican Party's strength coming into this election, we talked about this two years ago, was that it had actually this contingent of, of very successful uh, governors, young, energetic governors with experience who then had got no cred for that actual experience who were not could, – they couldn't even run on their strongest point. I think that's roughly right. I think there are a couple of things, which is that we've seen this before. So this isn't totally new. So when, when Goldwater in 64 ran, it was the governors who – Republican governors who banded together against him. Why? Because as a senator, Goldwater could kind of have – believe in these certainties because he just voted on legislation. He didn't have to deal with the actual riots taking place in the cities. And so they were, A, much more worried about the consequences of the federal decisions that Goldwater was talking about. So this – we've seen this dynamic before, but I think you're exactly right. The funny thing though is if the culture – if Washington – if the kind of constant drumbeat that Washington is a mess and is horrible – allowed Trump to come in. He is a very activist government kind of candidate. But that inconsistency doesn't matter, right? right? There, I mean, all the inconsistencies don't matter. The fact that his position on immigration sunk Mike Pence's immigration plan doesn't matter. The fact that it was denounced as amnesty in previous versions doesn't matter. There are all of these facts that should get in the way, but because of the larger truth that people feel Trump is speaking – they're willing to let him off the hook on all of that stuff. So, Emily, let's let's turn to that. His nastiness, his lack of polite behavior, his intellectual inconsistency, his willingness to say loathsome things about groups of people and then about individuals. The stuff he was saying about Ted Cruz's dad in recent days, insane. Yeah. Is any of that, which did not particularly hurt him in this very narrow Republican primary, will that now matter as he faces a general election electorate? Or not? Yes, I think it will. I think it already does in the high numbers of people who say that they're scared of the idea of him being president and who strongly dislike him. I mean, he has these very high unfavorable ratings that seem like they're um, they go pretty deep. And I, I, he could try to turn that around, I guess. But he is so wedded to his own extreme positions. He said them over and over again. And also, he obviously relishes the reactions he gets from crowds. The idea that he's going to like just completely tone it down and turn into sober sides for the next six months or five months seems impossible yeah. to me. It's just totally at odds with his whole showman persona. I think that's right. It's also, if the combat that he's going to be in with Hillary Clinton is going to look like it has for the last couple of weeks, he needs that bombastic I mean, it, it, I guess it encourages that kind of bombastic response uh, right. from him. I think another thing, just in terms of going back briefly to, to the rise, I remember Ezra Klein and maybe lots of other people who have said this as well, but who put it very well about Trump being kind of, he may be a jerk, he may be all these things, but he's going to be a jerk on my behalf. He's going to punch the establishment and the elites and the, all these people who betrayed us, including the media, including the Republican establishment. He He's going to punch him in the nose on my behalf, and that delights me. And that's... But how can you feel that way if you fall into these other categories, right? How do Latinos feel that way? I mean, I... No, they don't. How could you be... I, 
Well, right. Got, that's that's why he's right. got negative it, it, eighty. That's why he's got an eighty percent on approval rating right. with with uh, right. disapproval rating. And for women, how does the Republican Party, given that point, Emily, prevent itself from becoming a white nationalist party in the way that you have these white nationalist parties in in Europe or John? I mean, I think they pray that Trump's figure, Trump figures out how to broaden his appeal and once more crashes through the ceiling that we're all predicting for him and appeals, gets people on board in a way that, I mean, to me, it seems like magical thinking, but that has to be their play, right? Because I don't see how they can really do it for him. He's so his own animal and own person yeah. in all of this. Um, Wait, but can't they hope he just as a disastrous campaign and they, they, they sort of hold their yes. nose, cover their ears, get through November, lose, and then say, okay, now we're, we're rebooting. <laughs> and then they can say that they still control the House and the Senate and most of the state houses and Paul Ryan becomes their standard bearer and leader, a much more nationally appealing figure. And yeah, they don't have the presidency for four more years and they lose the Supreme Court, but then they run against, you know, the record of Hillary Clinton and that Supreme Court, whatever it is, and they hope that they win the next time. That seems to me like the str- the, the smart play. But on the other hand, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the party to get behind Trump and or at least parts of the party. I mean, in these sort of difficult, uncomfortable choices people are going to have to make. And I imagine like a lot of strong, divided opinion about whether the best thing to do is to do what you said, hold your nose, close your eyes, distance yourself, try to hold out hope that Latino and female voters will come back to you because you're not totally identified with this person versus like Maybe he can win, and then we want to all get on board and help him win. Yeah, I, it's a, we're, it is a messy business right now. I mean, in the conversations I've had since he won, the first thing is that he won faster. A lot of people were expecting him perhaps to win, but they were going to have a month to figure stuff out before California. So even the Trump campaign was overwhelmed by the reality of having to deal. And one thing to watch is that it is a small, close-knit organization. They are going to have to scale up super fast, both just as a, to run a national campaign, but secondarily to raise the money. There's been a lot of coverage about, oh, he's decided to take money in the general election. That's a big change of mind. He's been saying he's going to take money since in the general election since August. The, the place to watch is that a guy who at least one of his top three arguments has been that lobbyists and donors control the people they donate to. He said he would take general election money if there was no strings attached, but he has defined strings attached being anybody who writes a check to a general election candidate. So the whole lobbying part of his and insider dealing part of his pitch is going to face some issues in the, in the Republican primary. That wouldn't matter in the general election. It's an avenue to sort of, You know, people thinking that he's not telling the truth and being trying to have it both ways, which is potentially more damaging with a different kind of electorate. While Paul Ryan is likely to come out with something that's pretty distancing from Trump, his members are terrified that what will happen to them essentially happened to Eric Cantor, you know, that they'll get some kind of that this angry electorate will will turn on them if they don't fall in behind Trump. But then there are the seven Senate Republicans who were in states that Obama won. And I was talking to somebody in the Republican Party yesterday at a, um, at a, at a level, at a high level and who advises candidates on what to do. And their argument was distance yourself as much as possible from Donald Trump. That's a tricky thing to do. Kelly Ayotte running up in New Hampshire said, well, she's going to vote for Trump, but she's not endorsing him, which to me, it seems to, is just an invitation to be asked what the devil that means at every single. I've never understood that distinction from anybody. And it just seems to me when Donald Trump is out saying things 
again and again and again that cause uproars, how you as a candidate get away from it by just saying, well, I'm going to vote for him, but not endorse him. I think this is a this is a real challenge for all those candidates. I it's, I don't want to feel fear about the idea of Trump attacking Clinton like this is politics. She's a big girl. But I do. I feel fear of all the misogyny and ugliness that is going to get unleashed during this campaign and the coarsening of the debate and the idea that my kids are going to have to listen to all of these things come out of the mouth of a major presidential candidate, all the things that have already come out of his mouth and are already making their way into attack ads. It just feels like this public display of demeaning ugliness toward women that I I wish we would be spared. And I guess you could say like, okay, let's just put it all out there. Then we know where we stand. But I don't want to live through that. I, I don't need to hear all of that. I, I, it's going to be a pretty coarse conversation that's going to happen. Even forget the attacks on Hillary Clinton. I mean, so Donald Trump has re-upped on his view that Muslims should be banned from new Muslim immigrants should First be banned from days. America. And that, yes. and that uh, undocumented workers should be deported immediately. So I think it's good to have those frank conversations because he has tapped into a feeling that is out there, whether we have a conversation about it at the dinner table or not. And not having those conversations in a frank way leads to the kind of corrosion and just kind of nothing gets done. So I'm, I, I, I hope there's a chance that while these will be uncomfortable conversations, people will also have to stand up and say what they believe. I've been fascinated to watch people in the Never Trump movement, the way in which people are frankly articulating the whole view of what they believe government is for, what they believe conservatism is about, what they believe people should expect from their government and, and the stands politicians should take. It's very uh, frank and illuminating conversations that isn't about code. It's right up the middle, straight up, like, this is what I believe. And I, I think that's good. And now let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. As America celebrates National Small Business Week, Stamps.com wants to honor not only its over 600,000 small business customers, they also want to extend an invitation to every small business that wants to reduce or eliminate wasteful trips to the post office. Stamps.com knows that one of your most valuable resources as a small business is time. That's why Stamps.com brings all the services of the post office right to your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, and any class of mail using your computer and printer. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's stamps.com. Enter GabFest. The Supreme Court seems quite ready to overturn the corruption conviction of former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. McDonnell was convicted and sentenced to prison for taking uh, about $200,000 in gifts from a Virginia businessman named Johnny Williams. Williams was seeking the governor's help to push a tobacco-based pharmaceutical compound that Williams had developed. He plied McDonald and his wife with a watch, a fancy watch, rides in fancy cars, shopping sprees, loans. They, in turn, made phone calls on his behalf, uh, hosted an event promoting the product, I think, and generally sort of made it known in universities and in the Virginia government that why don't you take a look at this nice product? For this, they were tried and convicted of corruption. Emily, 
What was the original conviction based on and why does the Supreme Court appear to be so skeptical of this conviction? The original conviction is based on the Hobbes Act and this idea that a breach of what's called honest services, this idea that um, if you are a public official and you take a lot of money and then you do an official act, that's the very kind of vague wording in the law, you are, can be corrupted. You can, I'm sorry, you can be convicted of corruption. And that the Hobbes Act originally seems to have been written. I mean, it's always hard to tell what the intent of some old congressional statute is, but it looks like it started off as a kind of narrower quid pro quo idea of bribery. Like someone gives you money, their law passes. But over the years, through the Supreme Court, the scope of the law expanded. And in the last few years, we've seen the court start to dial it back. So everyone is familiar with Citizens United. It adopted a kind of narrower quid pro quo definition of corruption, where Justice Kennedy said it's like a normal part of public affairs and democracy for people to give campaign donations and expect some influence, right? So mere influence and ingratiation, Kennedy said, is not corruptions such that Congress is allowed to regulate. So now we're not in the world of campaign donations or regulations. We're in the world of gifts to public officials and federal bribery law. And there's another case, the overturning of the conviction of Jeffrey Skilling, one of the Enron guys, in which the court d narrowed the definition of corruption in that context. And so if you put Citizens United together with the skilling decision, you cast doubt on the government's definition of corruption in the Bob McDonald case, and in particular, the jury instructions that the judge gave where he said that the jury could convict, for example, if they thought that the governor had pressured university administrators to do something for McDonald. Maybe that's too broad. Maybe that's like normal course of business for the government. That's what Justice Breyer and Justice Kennedy were suggesting at oral argument. And one other piece of this, which is important and I feel like has been overlooked in some of the coverage, Virginia at the time had no law that made all this Rolex watch acceptance by the governor illegal. So because it was he disclosed it all. Now Virginia does have such a law, and, and many of the states have laws that just say you're not allowed to accept a gift. Oh, I mean, you know, a state can say you can't accept $20 from one of your constituents and just make it illegal. But Virginia, it's the lack of Virginia's law that applied at the time that leaves us in the land of federal bribery law. And this concern that Breyer and Kennedy were raising that if we have a really broad definition of corruption, we're going to be giving prosecutors too much power to decide which public officials to prosecute. Yeah, right. So Virginia Virginia did, I think, because it had this sort of honor code tradition, honestly, that, that comes out of UVA, but it, that made it all the way into the Virginia state legislature. There was a sort of we're, we're honorable people here. And of course, we won't be corrupted. So it actually never had the laws on the books that a lot of other states did about gift giving and, and that form of corruption. Isn't simply fixing those gift laws enough? It does seem like like that was the, that, that was the main yes, thing. Yes, I do think that that would solve a lot of the problem here. And if you look at the statute that Virginia has adopted, it's really broad. They're talking about um, public officials not being able to accept any gift or gratuity or promise to make a gift or do any act beneficial to the person who gives the gift, et cetera, et cetera. So it does seem like that is an obvious way to attack um, and uh, prevent this kind of behavior. Isn't corruption fine, John? Isn't a little bit of corruption okay? 
greasing it, you know, doing favors for friends. I, I know that if I were in public office, I'm sure I would do favors for friends. I do favors for friends as a not in public office. I'm constantly doing favors for friends. And I assume if I were in public office, I would continue to do favors for friends. Right. Well, you and, do, the question is whether you're well, OK, so there are a variety of ways to answer your question. But one thing is about the fav- friends you the favors you do for your friends are within a, a range. People make a judgment about you when they elect you. Then your friends kind of come along with you. And so you can have commerce with your friends. You do a favor for them. They do it for you. But it's within, presumably, you've been adjudic- You've been dis- determined to be a decent fir- person. If I can buy your friendship instantly by giving you a bunch of watches, then this isn't a don't, friend. You can't. Instantly, <laughs> FYI, don't care about watches. Don't wear one. Don't give me that. That's yeah. not what I want. Go ahead. I, I, it's no funny. I love my Lutz. watch, but I don't care what kind of watch. Well, I do care, but I mean, it's a $20 watch. So yeah. anyway. So, so that's the watches are not going to do it for you guys. We'll have to find your weak spot. A good vacation, maybe. So I guess that's, a, that's, of course, the big distinction is that I shouldn't be able to so quickly buy myself into your friendship through just simple money. Um, but but up to your back to your, uh, to your other point, which is, yes, I think we've learned that the relationship game is basically what gets people through mostly all their jobs. I mean, you need to do favors for people. You need to lean on people, and they then need to be able to know they can lean on you. That's the way stuff. That's the way things get done. And there's a benign form of that. Secondarily, when you're picking politicians too, I think there's a really strong case to be made for the influence of parties that has been squeezed out, and the influence of the elites that were a part of the early formation of the republic, which was. That basically the people you the people you work with, in, if you've been in government, the elites who used to make the choices in these elections, have some sense of your character. I mean, the whole damn thing may be corrupt. In which case, then the sense they have of your character is that you have none, and that'll be good for everyone. But. Another view of it is that they've seen you in pressure situations. They've gotten the closest association with you and can make a judgment as opposed to somebody who's just learned about you a week ago and liked something you, they heard you say while they were walking through the living room and, and the TV was on and that they base their vote and therefore giving you power based on that. Okay, fun, but we're talking about public officials here. I mean, what Bob McDonald was doing was taking money from this guy who was peddling a dietary supplement and hosting events for him in the governor's mansion, making phone calls on his behalf, having meetings with him. So the legal question under the Hobbs Act, were those official acts? Is that enough? Or should the prosecutors have had to show that Johnny Williams actually got something in return? And if you're going to up the ante that much, if you're going to be only in the land of quid pro quo, and then you're going to require proof that the money attained its end, that's like a really high bar for prosecutors to reach. That means you're almost in the land of requiring some kind of smoking gun, which is is tough to get. And that would really reduce the role of federal prosecutors fighting government corruption. I'm not sure we really want to go all the way there either. Well, you, you make a perfectly fair point about that. I guess I when I think about this, I think about this more and holistically that the the move in the 20th century and the move with good government and progressivism was to generally say public officials should be uh, incorruptible, that decisions should be made uh, totally fairly. At the, at the extreme end, it's like, let's get rid of earmarking. Let's get rid of any ability of politicians to steer things to themselves or to their districts. And I think that that while particular improvements there are valuable, I don't think it's good for for politicians to necessarily get rich by serving in public office. I also think that 
the nature of politics is that you have to have lubrication and cash is lubrication. Cash and building things and and favors for people are the lubricant that allows the system to work. And we should be really cautious about trying to remove that lubricant from the system all the time. And 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 to We should be cautious about removing the Rolex watches that's and the yeah, fancy ba- yeah. cars. Yeah. That I I yeah. can't I got I I'm I, I get off the bus that before that far. I totally agree with the lubrication form and I wish I was smart enough. And I feel like somebody probably has written a, uh, something that gives you all the different gradations of this, but um where where yes um, why has Congress stopped working? Congress has stopped working because there are no earmarks anymore. That is the probably but there are the plenty number. of Rolex watches and Rolexes yeah, yeah, are different, different things. things. Come on, they're, re- they're not related. The same thing. They're related. How are they related? No, they're really you earmarks. can draw a st- straight line. Like that is not those are two different things. The function of government to you know yes, like they're, from the point of view connected. of the recipient. They're they're not the same. You can outlaw the Rolexes under state law and keep the earmarks, right? Like those. That's not a hard line to draw. I'm not saying they're identical, but I do think they're they're shades of gray on a on a spectrum. And that when you get too high and mighty about outlawing all forms of public corruption and and making sure people can't do favors and making sure there's there's less greasing, the end point is actually this this purity. That we have now in the national government, and that's a terrible place to be. What I'd is, much rather have is, I'd much rather have Congress members of Congress taking bribes and and pocketing Rolex watches and pocketing wads of cash, but also being able to earmark and thus being able to sort of do the daily business of of government effectively than to have the system we have now. Right. So a little potential for the messiness allows good uh, enough good things to happen that it would outweigh it. Yeah. I can see that argument. Um, so isn't that an argument in favor of the Supreme Court's ruling in Citizens United? Because, I mean, we've been blurring the line between gifts and campaign contributions. But earmarks, I think, really have to do much more often with campaign contributions. And the definition of corruption that Justice Kennedy adopted in Citizens United is narrow enough to allow for all kinds of the influence that you're talking yeah. about, so- David. I mean, I think it's crazy because it doesn't recognize the the way in which that influence is corrupting. But maybe you feel like that's well, worth it. and also it doesn't. It rec- David's scheme, uh, I think, assumes that all the people who are using earmarks to grease their business are, in the end, moving towards a relatively benevolent goal. But it could also be possible that they're using earmarks to create legislation that only further. Uh, feathers the nest of the people who give them donations. And therefore, because they're not virtuous at heart, the greasing of the skids is only moving them to a more dastardly end, as opposed to originally when you thought, well, they were in it for benevolent reasons, that would always check them at some moment in the quiet of their house, they would feel some to be compelled to do the right thing. So that's probably another issue. Yeah, no. Yeah, that's that's very well put, John. And not I, to mention that you're increasing the influence of the people who have a lot of money and are able, right? So it has a warping effect and moves laws and policy in their direction. It does, but I guess I look back when I look back at what's the period in American history where government worked relatively well and was a was a force for the most good. I sort of point it to maybe the Progressive Era through the you know early 1960s. Like if Lyndon Johnson were – if everything were Lyndon Johnson, America would be a great place, which is you have somebody who's who's entirely corrupt and is entirely personally corrupt too and is benefiting hugely personally from 
shady, crooked deals, but is acting kind of in the public interest at the same time. And it, it is it is that corruption that enables the public interest to be to be served. But the thing about well, the but that just happenstance that LBJ happened to be on the side that you think is the virtuous side. He could have been on the other side. And the progressive era to the early 60s is a time that was really good for white men in terms of law and policy making and not so great for other people. Also, the other progressive era from the 1890s and the 1920s was a response to widespread corruption. So true. In that case, you could argue, but yes, you want lots of corruption because the corruption will make the system so dirty and clotted and gross that people will rise up and call for emergency action and that therefore will break through. That we have to go through cycles of binge and sobriety, but that's an argument that seems hard to sell. Now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Harry's. Great quality often comes with a higher price, whether you're paying a little bit extra for a good cup of coffee or a lot more for a brand you care about. Cost and quality seem to go hand in hand, but one company that is breaking that pattern is Harry's. Harry's, as GapFest listeners know, is a fantastic company, one that I'm devoted to, and they make incredible razors at a great price and incredible accessories for your razors at a great price. And one of my one of my great pleasures every week is coming home after being in New York and shaving off the crummy bits of my beard with my Harry's razor. It's a it's a joy, something I genuinely look forward to. Harry's was started by two guys who were passionate about creating a better shaving experience. And the factory that produces their blades has been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for nearly a century. With Harry's, you get superior shaving products for a low price. Their starter set is just $15 and includes a razor handle, three blades, and moisturizing shave cream, and shipping is always free. So go now to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase when you use the promo code GABFEST at checkout. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, promo code GABFEST. Yale College made a series of bizarre, nay, inexplicable decisions this week about... (laughs) (laughs) race and its history under pressure from students after a pair of charged episodes, racially charged episodes last year. And in the midst of an expansion of its college system, Yale announced that A, it would stop referring to the heads of its colleges as masters. B, it would name the two new colleges it was building after one would be named after Polly Murray, a civil rights activist and a woman. The other would be named after Ben Franklin, not a civil rights activist and a man. And C, it would keep one of its colleges named after John C. Calhoun. It would remain Calhoun College. Uh, but there was this was couched in a lot of f- fluffy chaff about how <laughs> it would use the Calhoun name to teach Calhoun's hard history as an advocate of slavery. This, of course, this incident at Yale follows on lots of discussion on campuses about, about many, many things, but in particular, Princeton's debate about whether to rename the Wilson School that that university has. Um, like, it seems to me they botched this in all the ways they could possibly botch it, that naming, naming a college after Ben Franklin, like, like Ben Franklin needs another thing named after him, seemed insane. He's another dead white guy, also a slaveholder. And it was named... Was he be- a slaveholder? I yeah, didn't know that. Although he really slaves and became an abolitionist. Yes. It was named because the donor of the money asked them to name Ben Franklin. But then Yale insisted totally uncredibly that, oh, we didn't name it because he asked. 
but we took it. No, it was actually funny because they said like he never demanded it, mm. and so it was so so polite of him. Essentially, he got his way by by not insisting. It's really just so craven and that. Also, Franklin had a minimal connection to Yale. Yes. So we can't, can't carry on. I'm, I've talked too much. You're at Yale, carry which on. is, of course, I mean, we I know was, the heart of America. <laughs> um, I was really upset by this decision, really saddened by it, and also really surprised because Peter Salovey, the president of Yale, had initiated this whole supposed dialogue about the John C. Calhoun name in the fall in response to the terrible shootings in Charleston, North Carolina. And at that moment, it seemed that he was suggesting to the campus that it was really time to rethink the memorializing of racist, segregationist figures. And then the students and a lot of other people, but largely the students attended these sort of public listening events in which on campus the sentiment was very much in favor of changing the name. And that's not what happened in the end. I think a lot of them feel betrayed by the process as well as the result. And I just feel like this is such an example of Northern hypocrisy, right? Like we all look down our noses at the South and their, you know, Confederate flags and statues for Civil War heroes and like had a great time interrogating how antediluvian that was of them. And John C. Calhoun is absolutely up there with any other Confederate segregationist figure that you could name a building after. And what President Salovey said in his email about how we have to keep this history, which I find to be completely unpersuasive, was that we're not, or this was actually something he said in an interview in the New York Review of Books, that we're not celebrating Calhoun with this naming of the building, we're memorializing him. And that seems to me just a meaningless distinction. The kind of distinction that Kelly Ayotte was making between, you know, voting for Donald Trump and endorsing him. Like, come on, of course we are celebrating him. And there is no reason that this building has to eternally been named after this particular figure. And I just was really disappointed. Also, there's no way it will would eternally be named if someone had come along, if Charles Johnson had come along and said, you know what, I'll give you instead of $250 million, I'll give you $500 million, just rename Calhoun to Sojourner Truth College. Right. They would have done it in a second. They wouldn't have thought about right. it. It's not even a principled decision, actually. It, it's weird that they made the decision. It is so – no one cares. Calhoun doesn't have any connection to Yale that that's anyone knows about. Thing. Yeah, that's the well, thing. Well, there was – to explain, and I'm not justifying, there there was also, you know, a reaction from alumni across the country to President Salovey opening this dialogue. And the university has closed to the public the co comments it collected online, so I don't know what they say. But I imagine that Salovey was hearing some blowback around the country from alumni who didn't want Yale to change this name. And I have a feeling it's connected to the uproar on campus over um, the racially charged incidents here in the fall, which are complicated. I don't want to get back into them. But that debate on campus played out as a debate in which a lot of students, especially minority students, were voicing their sense that they don't feel like Yale is a place that sufficiently includes them, a place that they feel enough sense of belonging. Off campus, that played out as, you know, Yale students can't handle free speech, which I think was deeply unfair to the students. They were exercising their rights to free speech. But I do think that's what happened. And so I worry that 
these things all got mixed up with each other in a way that the national rendering of that story made it seem as if to change the Calhoun name was somehow like giving in to unreasonable demands the students were making to be coddled, which I think, again, I think that's wrong. But I think that everything seemed to have gotten sort of jumbled here. I I don't think this is a reason to keep the name. But I do think that uh, separately that Calhoun... Barry Goldwater, people who believed in states' rights. I mean, the states' rights argument comes right. I mean, it comes right out of Jefferson and it comes right out of the founding of our country. And so to, and this is again, not about the building, it's about the teaching. I think there should be a lot of time spent on this line of thinking, both because there's a part of it that's a crucial part of the, you know, American system. But also because you need to know where an idea that's central to the country's founding, which is to say individual liberty and trying to keep government out of people's lives because that allows them to be the most productive, where how it goes wrong, where it goes wrong, where it goes too far, how those ideas transform and transmogrify, because that's going to happen again and again and again and again. And so knowing and watching that transformation it is a crucial part of, of learning. So that's a tangent that doesn't really have to do with the building, but it's on my mind. Right. Well, no, I think, no, I think it's, it's important, actually, yeah. because it's it's about how we remember, right? So in this case, does it require that John C. Calhoun's name be emblazoned forever no. on this residential college where people have to... No, it means that you put up a plaque, you have a, di- a discussion series, a lecture in right. his name in which you interrogate these... Right? Yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah, so yeah. many yeah, ways... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm not... Uh, the, I, I, I went are. down that road... Right. Uh, for another and, you know. right, and the reason you don't, and the reason you don't take, um, you don't take Jefferson out of the University of Virginia, and you don't take Wilson out of Princeton, is that that for all the appalling things that they stand for on race, that they're they're much more central to those institutions' identities. In Wilson's case, I think he is the his name is on the international school. He is like the architect of some of the most important thinking about international relations the world has ever seen. And he, he is the most important figure in Princeton's history, not just as its president, but then the president of the United States. And I bet that at Yale, what you're going to have, you're going to have students refusing to live in that college. You're going to have, that is going to be a poisonous place. There's going to, there's going to be rage there, just pointlessly, like no, for no good reason. They're, right. And it's so unfair and, to the students. And it's unfair to the students. I mean, imagine if you're a black student, you're an African-American student who's assigned next year to Calhoun College. How? Right. It's pretty toxic. It sort of invites the students to to feel like being alienated and disaffected is what the university actually expects from them in some way. It gives them little other choice but to land in that box after the university has kind of seemed to open its arms to them and invite their contributions. And the other thing I have to say is, you know, Yale is also in the middle of, or at least I hope in the middle of, an effort to increase faculty diversity, which at the moment is below 3%. And the university, you know, threw some money at this issue in the fall, but not in a way that is clearly meaningful across all departments, um, has not had a good record on this issue lately in terms of faculty hiring. And that's another thing that the students have raised and is an issue for them because it affects their experience of being here. Um, And it's all of these things together are just, it's not a good end to the school year. And now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Tracker. Technology has made everything smart, but losing your stuff still makes smart people feel really stupid. That's why there's Tracker. Tracker makes losing things a thing of the past. 
tracker is a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Pair tracker to your smartphone, attach it to anything, and find its precise location with the tap of a button. I've got trackers on my car keys now. My wife has it on her life essential diabetes kit. And in fact, she uh, lost that the other day and we used tracker to find it, which was good because we don't want her blood sugar falling or rising too much. In a lot of cities, bike theft is a big problem. You could put tracker on your bike and you'll always know exactly where it is. Tracker is a special deal for GapFest listeners today. Right now, you get 30% off your entire order. Just go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code GABFEST. Again, that's thetracker.com. Enter promo code GABFEST. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting, Emily, in, in the heart of America in New Haven, thinking about what it's like <laughs> to be a true American, what it's like to live in the real America, you're having a real American drink. What is the traditional drink of New Haven? Because that's now clearly the realest American drink. Is it a Chardonnay? Well, there is. <laughs> that's a good question. There's a Pinot Noir. Um, no, it's beer. It's definitely some kind of beer. There's like Connecticut beer, which I'm forgetting the name of. Right old Saybrook. When you're having an old Saybrook ale, Emily, what will you be chattering about? Um, I am going to have a embarrassingly self-absorbed chatter today. I want to thank the Reveal podcast, a new-ish podcast I really like, for having me on this week to talk about affirmative action and the Texas Supreme Court case that we're waiting for the result for. I thought they did a great job. And I also have a story posting on Thursday and in print in the New York Times Magazine this weekend. It's about the question of whether prostitution should be a crime and the sex workers' rights movement. And I've been working on it for a really long time. The photos with the story, I think, are pretty awesome. I can say that since I didn't have anything to do with that part in terms of taking them or directing them. And I would love to hear from people about what they think. Emily actually talks about that story on another on the Double X podcast. So if you want to hear Emily talk more about that story, you can listen to the Double yes, X podcast. Yes, they were super nice and had me as a guest this week. JD, what is your chatter? I have airplane-related chatter. The first is that I, I love what that JetBlue for Mother's Day gave patrons, I think it's a 25% discount for a, if there is a crying baby on the plane. So they've turned a thing that is sometimes annoying when you're on a plane, though you may have fellow feeling for the poor parent who's trying to quiet their crying child. Doesn't that incentivize people to make babies cry? You probably don't have people that are cravenly making their um, babies you cry. Think but about what the if baby poking? That could what be if going all the other passengers the baby hair pulling? <laughs> yeah, it could. It, I guess I was thinking of it in terms of the parent, like sticking a tack into the poor child's uh, tender do, foot. But it. But do I the guess, parents get the discount too, or only other people get the discount? I think surely the parents get the discount. They should get the free ticket. Anyway, I just thought that was uh, clever behavior. And then the second thing is this charming and totally quirky piece in CityLab.com of um, this guy, Bruce Campbell, who lives inside of an old Boeing 727. Most of us think of extended periods of time inside airplanes as a special kind of unpleasantness. But he has made the case both in um, Oregon where this 727 he's oh, yeah. living in and also in Miyazaki, he's trying to do the same thing, that they're perfect little dwellings. They'll last forever. They have everything you need inside them. The wings can be like your porch. And there's a great little documentary, a couple of two minute long documentary of his of how he's retrofitted this 727. It's slightly disconcerting to see a 727 
I think this was like a Greek airliner from the 1960s to see it in in the middle of a like nice vert field with and the pictures are all from the fall. So it looks a little weird. You don't expect a plane to be in natural settings. And when you do, you think of it as like something's gone wrong. So it just kind of watching the, the video plays with your sensory response to to airplane flight in a way uh, that I found interesting. So it's on uh, citylab.com and that guy's name is Bruce Campbell. He also has a blog called airplanehome.com in which he goes through his thinking about this. Did he take the seats out inside or is Yeah, he, yeah, like, yeah, sleeping? he took all the seats out. The the <laughs> oh, seats are all out and um okay. it's been massively retrofitted. He he walks in through the aft stairs. The bathrooms still work. God. And, and but it must uh, smell like a plane still. I hate that smell more than anything. I I should think not. It's in actually. the Oregon woods. Yeah. The mm, uh okay. several things. One, I think some people visited that plane on Obscura Day. Two, Atlas Obscura just did a great little thing about in Thailand, there's an airplane graveyard where there are a bunch of planes, which homeless people have taken and moved into. Oh. And so it's it's sort of alternative housing. There are these families living, and they'll give you tours of their plane for, you know, 800 baht or whatever. I don't know if that's a reasonable sum. I just made that up. Okay. But I think it's a baht. One, pla- one of the reasons why one of these planes <laughs> is in this boneyard is that it was a plane that was in a fatal crash. So it's ghoulish. And ghoulish. People are living in it. Wow. So my chatter is about the apostrophe and an amazing fact I learned, which actually, John, you should pay attention to this. This is, I feel, uh, in 1890. Only John can appreciate well, the apostrophe. No, because, you know, I apostrophe. During the presidency, <laughs> maybe it's presidency of Benjamin Harrison, the Domestic Names Committee of the U.S. Board of Geographical Names declared that there can be no apostrophes in American place names. They've allowed a few to get through. They've allowed five in the last 113 years have been allowed or 116 Yeah. So That's Martha's crazy. Vineyard Martha's Vineyard has an apostrophe. Ike's Point, New Jersey. John E's Pond, Rhode Island. Carlos Elmer's Joshua View, Arizona. And Clark's Mountain, Oregon are the only ones which officially have apostrophes. Otherwise, the apostrophe is banned in U.S. place names. And kind of for a good reason. Largely, the, the, the main reason is that it suggests that this belongs to somebody, that it is their mm. possession. That is not the case in America. These are places of public access, and there are lots of places which you would think deserve. Harper's Ferry does not have an apostrophe anymore. Pike's Peak, no apostrophe, even though that was Pike's Peak. Johns Hopkins. Um, Just kidding. His name was Johns, wasn't it? I know. I know. <laughs> I just want to celebrate the fact that America and our democratic America has banned the apostrophe from real place names. So, But what do you think about the ban? Like the idea of banning them seems awfully heavy handed, no? Maybe, but... I don't know. Maybe not. I appreciate the sentiment. This was a decision made in the 1890s, long before the internet, but the internet also hates apostrophes. The internet doesn't That's want true. apostrophes. And so it's it's actually convenient in the the internet era not to have apostrophes. Since both of you have been my editor at times, you know that I uh, follow an <laughs> implicit ban on commas. <laughs> yeah, they're not your favorite punctuation. <laughs> favorite punctuation. It's true. I what is your favorite punctuation? I have a favorite punctuation. Huh. Well, you know, I... In rough drafts, it's the dash, right? Because it's like it gets you through what you're doing and on to your next thought without slowing you down. What about you, Emily? This is similar. Impulse is the colon, right? It's basically like the punctuation mark with more gravitas that accomplishes the same thing. What about you? Mine is definitely the colon because it fulfills my, I'm now going to just pause and really tell you what I think. (laughs) 
All right. Our intern is Elvis Guard Church for just a little while longer. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. And you can check out the entire roster of Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today and to buy tickets to that live show in Washington at Slate.com slash live. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is, of course, at SlateGabFest. That is the most important of all. Subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Allison. I have three kids, and they've only been to the dentist once. Hi, I'm Dan. I can't get my kids to stop swearing at me. Together, we are Slate's parenting experts. For more parenting triumphs and fails, not judgmental, but slightly judgmental, conversations about parenting in the news, plus honest talk with interesting guests about what it's like to be a parent today. Please check out our podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Find it at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.